Welcome to the Wigtown Book Festival in lockdown. My name is Peggy Hughes and among other things I am a long-term Wigtown Book Festival fan. So I'm really delighted to be here today in your ears with some very special guests telling us about how they're dealing with literature in lockdown. We've got Sasha de Boyle, who's the director of the Kirch Literature Festival in Galway. Fresh from an absolutely fantastic time at the weekend, she's going to tell us how it all went. Uh, but first of all, we're going to chat with Adrian Turpin, our very own artistic director, and Lee Randall, who's programmer of Granite Noir Crime Writing Festival in Aberdeen, critic and chairperson extraordinaire. Hello, both. Hello. Hello. How are you? Tell us a little bit, Lee. Let's go with you first. How? How? What is the view where you are? The view is blue skies and green leaves. I live opposite the meadows in Edinburgh, and it's beautiful having a park just across the street. It's glorious. That sounds good. Are people behaving themselves in Edinburgh? Is there a lot of um, state-sanctioned exercise, but socially uh, socially responsible distancing happening? There's a lot of state-sanctioned. I don't know how far apart I'm supposed to stand. Going on. <laughs> People seem a little bit confused about what the rules are, but in general, they're trying not to harm one another. Superb. That's all we can ask for. Adrian, how are you? How's London? It's good. I'm kind of staring out of my office, looking in the garden, and at a wasp that's been crawling around my office. So if you hear a loud sort of scream halfway through this, it's probably because I've been stung, <laughs> or you may get buzzing in the background. Uh, hopefully no Adrians will be harmed then in the making of this this particular <laughs> broadcast. But um, Adrian, tell us then, how is Good Ship Wigtown? How are the people there? It's a funny one. Obviously, a bit like everyone else, we kind of, you know, when this all first happened, we, we spent the first chunk of time sort of reacting, particularly cancelling things. And since then, it's been a really fast kind of learning curve. And the weird, really weird thing is that because I'm down in London and a lot of the team are in Wigtown, Isla, the lovely Isla, is on the island of Isla. So we're, we're, we're sort of doing versions of this podcast in a funny kind of way every day, kind of trying to catch up with each other and keep in touch, even though we're all over all over the shop. But I think we, we very quickly moved on to sort of feeling that we really wanted to take whatever it sounds a terrible thing to say um, at the moment, but take whatever positives there were out of this situation and to see how we could kind of challenge ourselves to try and deliver things in a slightly different way because obviously we're not going to be meeting up face to face for a little while. And you are in fact delivering some lovely things. Can you talk, I, I'm really interested in that that sense of cancelling and then having to reshape and go forward and try and, you know, kind of, as you say, focus on the positives. What are you doing and how did you reach those creative decisions, I guess? I think when you start these things, there's a there's a tendency to, or when the situation started, I think there's a tendency for, for, for there to be naturally negatives. You're saying, no, we can't do this and no, we can't do that. And I think we felt very early on that we needed to think very positively. It was kind of really weird that we we spend a lot of time normally with book festivals, spend a lot of time talking about the importance of reading, the importance of discussion, communicating, listening. And so it seemed particularly weird that we would sort of go silent at the time when there are a lot of people at home with the time for a lot of people to listen, the time to think, the time to talk. This really should be a time when we were getting in touch with them and, and, and engaging with them rather than sort of just heading into a kind of deep silence over, over the summer. And I think that's particularly true with Wigtown because it feels like there is a at every level from the team itself through to the volunteers, through to the town, through to the audience who come back year after year and, and certain authors who we see 
we see all the time. It felt that there already were these different overlapping communities. So we, we were in a very good position in a way to try and keep the conversation going with all, all those groups of people. It, it, it certainly feels like a like a brilliant time for festivals and producers to, to be experimental and to take some risks. And, and you know, Wigtown's always been brilliant at that, at, at trying things. Can you tell us about some of the things you have put in place then? I th- I'm, I'm aware of Wigtown Wednesdays. Yeah, I mean, Wigtown Wednesdays, the, I, I think one of the things we lo- you learn very quickly on doing digital things is that people like, they like to have kind of fixed points in the week. So, so we, what we're doing is we're doing regular events on Wednesdays so that people know that they've got that point in the week where they can check in with what we're doing and they can see ahead who's coming up. But I, I wanted that very much to be not just straightforward author events. So as it goes on, I hope we're going to have a little bit of fun and play around with those. I mean, we're going to do a pub quiz, uh, Stuart Kelly's literary pub quiz in a couple oh, of weeks. Oh, no. <laughs> um, there are rumours that Wigton's Got Talent may be coming back at some Oh, my point, gosh. Even. This is huge if true. Um, and I think the spirit of the festival has always been that we mix up the uh, – I was going to say highbrow stuff, but I don't really, I don't really believe in brows in, in that way. But we we mix up the sort of literary stuff with the stuff that's maybe a little bit a little bit more informal. And I felt very much that our live content online should really reflect that. But it's not just about live events. I, I think in a way you can go down that rabbit hole too far. I think you know we're a book festival. Why not commission people to read? And why not commission people to read larger pieces? So. As the weeks go on, I think we're going to see, well, last week I commissioned a couple of short stories. We've commissioned a bit of long-form journalism. Uh, We've looked back into our archive, all trying to get the same kind of mix that we have during the festival and during festival week. Wonderful. And I'm aware, of course, that you've commissioned a piece from Lee Randall herself. You, first of all, Adrian, just say, what, what, what what did you want from that piece? And then we'll have a chat with Lee about the particulars of it. The thing is... In lots of parts of life, you know, everyone thinks that, you know, you've got experts on everything, haven't you? You know, people know what they're doing. And what was extraordinary, or one of the extraordinary things about this situation is that, you know, what we're doing in putting on festivals and things, there's a whole group of people out there who didn't really have that experience. I mean, obviously, we had a website and we'd done the odd digital thing. But, you know, I think a lot of people who are involved in festivals, are, you know, they're people who very often they've worked in the arts. They're a little bit suspicious of digital. I think I was always a little bit suspicious of all the online stuff because I always felt like, particularly with Wigtown, that, you know, you sort of had to be in the room. The whole point was about coming this long distance to a place and being there at a certain point in time with a certain other group of of people and that was where the the magic was so I mean even in terms of recording events we didn't record recorded most of the events but we didn't didn't really ever use that material we we haven't videoed everything and it was sort of specifically that wasn't just not getting around to doing it it was actually specifically kind of feeling that that wasn't really what our job our job was to be live and to be spontaneous and to be in the moment so I think we've had to rethink that and like a lot of people across, you know, been involved in festivals, suddenly we're having to, we're on a massive learning course about how does this digital stuff really work? How can we make it work for us? How can we make it live and vibrant? So what I wanted Lee to do with the piece really was, was not to go in as some kind of expert, but to look at this new literary landscape, all the events that are taking place online, and really look at it from the point of view of all of us, which is a sort of interested and hopefully engaged intelligent novices to say what is this you know I've, I've gone down a rabbit hole into this into this digital world 
How does it all work? Does it work? And what's it going to mean for us in the long term? Because I suspect for us, the way we're working, using the website a lot more, using social media a lot more, commissioning in in this way, I don't think we're necessarily going to go back from all of that. I, I don't think we'll necessarily be doing quite as much as we do at the moment, but I think it will actually change the way that we work entirely when we get back to normal or whatever whatever the nearest thing to yeah. normal is um, when we get there. Lee, I, coming to you then, talk to us a little bit about this piece in this nice, um, hopefully nice, welcome commission from Adrian. And, and so how do you how do you go about a piece like that? Because you're someone, Lee, who has, you know, relationships with tons of festivals, you know, you're a really, you know, popular and well-known chair. So how do you begin to map that landscape? Well, I, I felt that Adrian was giving me a, a chance to think out loud and to ask questions and not necessarily answer them, because I don't think we have any of the answers right now. And I think some of the people I rang up and asked questions of, they recognize we don't have the answers now and we're experimenting and testing things out and flying and failing. <laughs> so basically, I I spent, I probably spent a day panicking, thinking, I just want to write <laughs> giant caps saying, book festivals must survive, book festivals must survive. And then I took a deep breath and said, no, Lee, that's not the piece you were asked to write. <laughs> How did you decide then who to um, who to choose? You chatted Nick Barley of the Edinburgh International Book Festival. I spoke to Nick uh, Sasha De- that yeah. seemed very obvious. I spoke to Sasha De Boyle. And because, you know, there, between myself and Sasha and Nick, we had all festival people. I thought, well, hang on a minute. What does it look like from the publisher's point of view? So I got in touch with a longtime friend and colleague, Alison Barrow, Director of Publicity at Transworld, which is part of the Penguin Random House Group. I thought that would give a little bit of depth and dimension to the conversation. Yeah, no, absolutely. And of course that we're all we're all a big ecosystem. I mean, festivals can't happen without publishers and the and the books they're producing and the, the tours that they're they're kind of curating. So um and what what so can you give us just Lee and I'm hoping that people will of course go on to read your your piece on the website, but but just a bit some of the headlines then. What are people what is what are they thinking? What are the differences and the the challenges that they're experiencing then? One of the things to point out is that on paper, in theory, the idea of a digital festival has a lot to recommend it. There's almost no carbon footprint. There's incredible accessibility. Anybody who, for whatever reason, can't or won't leave home, has a mobility issue, has a financial issue, because for now, most events seem to be being offered for free. There's this notion that the doors could be flying open for people who maybe wouldn't come through them before. I had to question whether or not that was really true because I think right now the people who are attending these events online right now are the book tribe who was already going to attend these events in person. These are the people who already had festival tickets booked, who are always at their local bookshop for whatever live event is happening. And while I think that the possibility for reaching more and more new audiences exists thanks to digital I don't think we're there yet. Adrian, can I ask you then to pick up on some of the things Lee was saying about audiences and who well might engage with, with this new way of working? How does that relate then to the, to your, your audience in Wigtown, do you think? I think audience development is a really interesting question generally. I'm fascinated by what Lee's saying there and what she says in the piece, because I think book festivals have been very bad about audience development generally, extending beyond the kind of literary middle classes it's it's a lot of festivals are not very good at doing that i think for us there are a couple of things one 
as we've looked at what kind of things we're going to do and what kind of things we put on on the website, my first point of contact is thinking first to the existing audience we've got, and particularly the audience in Wigtown or in Dumfries and Galloway immediately around us. That's our core because that's where our that's where our heart is. And I think, and, I, and that sounds a very soppy word to say that's where our heart is. But what I mean by that is, you know, there's a lot of this stuff out there at the moment. It's a lot of events. A lot, I mean, it's, obviously, it's an instant thing to say, okay, well, we can't do it live, we'll do it digitally. So you need to find where your kind of centre is, what your, I suppose, in marketing terms, what your unique selling point is. And I think for us, it, it is that it's that sense of place. It's that sense of obviously, it's it's an odd one for me to say sitting here in London, but it's that sense of shared heritage and new language and and being in that one very very specific place. And if you you know people, if you go to Wigtown, you know that it has this certain kind of feel. At the same time, I think there's also a really good opportunity to reach beyond that and for us to be able to project some of the things that we think are particularly special about our festival wider. Um, you know, we've we've been working on a European project for the last two years now with partners in Ireland and Finland. And I think there are ways maybe of, you know, using partners like that who you in the past, you know, maybe, oh, well, yes, travel's expensive or you've got to get them over or whatever. And this actually gives us the excuse to say, well, we don't have to get them over. We can work with them in different ways. We can work with them either running digital events or by commissioning things or by, you know, these things can be done at a distance. So in a funny kind of way, we're starting, I hope, at both ends of the scale. We're starting at the kind of, we've got the potential to develop the global and we've got the t- potential to go for the sort of the, the hyper-local. And I think some of the energy that I hope that we'll find during this project, and I think some of the energy that we get during the festival anyway, comes from those two things butting up against each other and sparking with each other. I think that's one of the very special things, that kind of mixture of the people who are utterly committed to the festival who are on the ground in Wigtown and the people who are coming from outside and that kind of exchange of ideas. And this this only gives you it gives you a, a, another way of amplifying that. Coming back then to something you said earlier, Adrian, and uh, we'll go to Lee first. I'm really interested in how you both think this is going to change the way we all work after. And I suppose I mean that mostly in, in our, our sector, in the festival and in the arts sector. Lee, how do you, how do you think this is going to have an impact on the way you work and the way you curate and the way you you know, potentially chair? What, what will change? Well, I'm very curious about how it's going to affect programming. I can fall in love with the work of a crime writer based in Alaska and I don't have to think, how on earth is my budget going to accommodate travel from Alaska, not to mention however many nights in a hotel because it's such a long trip, because we can beam that person in digitally if they're willing to participate. It makes the possibilities endless within, of course, the USP of a crime festival or any particular festival. In practice, I think what will probably happen is festivals will be looking for ways to improve or even inaugurate digital content. I think what I said in the piece was, I think it's going to become adjacent to instead of instead of. I think that it's going to be absorbed into the bigger tapestry of all the different kinds of events we're currently programming. Do you, Lee, do you think there's also the possibility that, slightly worryingly for festivals, but for publishers, that they're going to see that, you know, previously to run a festival is quite a big thing. You need infrastructure, you need experience, you need a place to do it. 
it's an expensive business. But actually, yeah. if they can coordinate this stuff and, and run effective streaming, then, yeah, there's an argument that a lot of these things are going to get cut out along uh, along the way and that, you know, they just they can go and speak directly to audiences. Well, I mean, that was my great fear. Now, some of these publishers already do have very sophisticated short videos on all of their sites. I know, and they're doing the At Home with Penguin Random House now, but they were already providing digital and video content. So it's not that what's happening is completely new, but I think it's the way we're looking at it. It's the way we're accessing it. I spoke to Allison about this. I said, will publishers want to tour their authors in the future, given the cost? And she said, yes, of course we will. There's no substitute for rocking up with your author and introducing them and introducing them to the bookseller's core audience as well. And the same thing goes for festivals. There's something about that person-to-person connection and meeting each other eye-to-eye, the handshake, the selfie, the signed book after an event. The feeling of community, it all does come back to that over and over again. So I was, I was thinking about that in terms of, um, you know, enjoying an event from the comfort of my living room, but it, but you can't all laugh at the same joke, yes. which, which I missed. <laughs> but Peggy, you can watch people do their washing up because a lot of people leave their cameras on. So you kind of see them sort well, of sitting there doing their washing up or eating their, eating their tea. I'm glad you brought that up, Adrian. How do you feel? Should, should there be a new, uh, a new set of guidelines for audience... Uh, Audience participation, audience comportment, rather. I don't know. I rather like it. I, I kind of think it, it adds to the kind of realness. Occasionally you get people sitting against a kind of amazing landscape and you're thinking, you know, where is that? Yeah. Do, do you think we'll, we'll, we'll almost see a kind of reversal of formality then? Do you think events might become, you know, when, when, when we can produce them and, and invite people in again? Do you think that that kind of church of book festival vibe that you sometimes get might might go away maybe i mean it's a nice it's a, ni- a nice thought yeah maybe people will start you know bringing domestic chores to <laughs> with them i mean occasionally <laughs> book festival events you see people knitting i suppose but you know maybe maybe there'll be people doing kind of you know basic car mechanics or, or whatever it is you you do while you're while you're listening to um, listening to, to a digital event i'm definitely enjoying all the um domestic animals and small people that turn up at zoom <laughs> meetings and so on these days it's it's a very nice insight into other people's worlds um i suppose i want to ask you uh just creatively then how are you both getting through the lockdown what are you reading what are you watching are you I'm intrigued to know if people are looking this storm right in the eye. You know, apparently Albert Camus' La Peste has uh, <laughs> is sold out everywhere. You know, are, are you read are you reading for info and for challenge, or are you, you no 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 absolutely like- not. I am. I spend a lot of time on talking pictures TV, which is mainly old movies and old British television shows. So I'm getting caught even after 22 years living in Scotland. There's a lot of popular culture I missed growing up in America. I'll put in plugs for a couple of books. I read A.J. Close's What We Did in the Dark about Catherine Carswell and beautifully, beautifully written. And then, of course, I hope it makes people go read Catherine Carswell. I read Weather by Jenny Offal the other day in about In a White Heat. Um, so that's, I loved I loved that. I'm jumping in just to agree. I think she's a genius. Yeah, she, <laughs> she is. And the fact that I can't see... The mechanism means I have to go back and reread the book. And then yesterday morning, I picked up my first Celia Fremlin book. People have been recommending her to me for ages on Twitter. I read The Hours Before Dawn, 
And it was 2.30 p.m. before I was able to actually put the book down. I, I could not, that phrase unputdownable is such a disgusting word, but it's absolutely true about this book. And I'm getting to read a lot of Earl Stanley Gardner's Perry Mason books because I promised crime reads I would write them an essay about him. A, a nice mixed palette there. Yeah. I love it. Lots of variety. Adrian, what about you? Yeah, I guess I strangely have been looking at it in the face. I mean, there's some things you do in a slightly self-referential way, like everybody's been watching Contagion, haven't they? You know, which is that Stephen Soderbergh film about a global pandemic. So you kind of feel... Oh, I, I haven't been watching no, that. No, I'll just, I haven't uh, <laughs> everybody, everybody, everybody I know has been, everybody been knew. watching it on, on Netflix. One of the many things I'm reading at the moment is um, the Emily St. John um, Mandel, you know, Station mm. Eleven, which is another pandemic book. And um, the other thing that I read recently was Mark O'Connell's wonderful new book, Notes from an Apocalypse, which is is all about sort of modern apocalyptic thought. So it starts with him sort of worrying about the world that he's brought his his small children into. And then it sort of skips around from billionaires uh, creating hideaways for themselves in New Zealand to um, preppers prepping in America for, for the end of days. But it's actually a very thoughtful, well put together book. And then I think the other side of that is that you you then need things that are going to take you out of that. And I know we've done a lot with him, but I'm absolutely blown away by Patrick Laurie's book, Native, which is his memoir about a year in running a Galloway farm and trying to run it in a way that um, supports uh, rare species, so curly, increasingly rare species like curlews, and also he, he breeds Galloway rigets. And he just blends this idea of the, this sort of rare species through the book in a way that is just, it, it's exceptional. I mean, very often you read nature books in that way, and you, you have that sort of sense of an editor in the background saying, can you just shove in a bit of personal stuff to kind of balance it out and put the whole thing together? But he's so nuanced in the way that he brings in these ideas of heredity and the land being passed on and the farm being passed on. And sitting in this situation, you know, where you, you can hardly go out and, and feeling this kind of expanse of the countryside around Dalbiti, which he writes about, it's, it's a really wonderful thing. And I, if that book doesn't win awards, if it doesn't win a Saltire Award for a start, I will eat my eat my hat um, but it, it should go on way beyond that to win other things it's a, it's a tremendous piece of writing that sounds beautiful can i what's a galloway rigget a galloway rigget is um well it's a it's a breed of galloway it's a breed of black galloway cows so everyone knows about belted galloways you know the big what the americans call oreo cows but riggets are rather more um they're, they're rather more scruffy beasts that come out in different colors and they normally have a line well they have a line along their their, their back my Few farming friends will find it hilarious that I'm trying to describe um, anything to do with uh, cattle. Fascinating what literature will do for you in lockdown. Thank you very much to Adrian and Lee. Lovely to get the views from London and Edinburgh and, of course, Wigtown. If you'd like to read Lee's piece, and I heartily recommend it, you can do so at wigtownbookfestival.com. One of the people in Lee's piece was Sasha de Boyle, who's director of Kirch Literature Festival in Galway. Fresh from a hugely successful weekend of literature events and podcasts, with which I joined in from afar, absolutely lovely stuff, we thought we would take the opportunity to chat to Sasha in person, or as near to person as we could make it. So here's Sasha coming down the line from Galway. 
Sasha, how are you? This is the just, the, what, two days after everything? Hi, Peggy. Thanks for having me on. Uh, yeah, I'm doing okay. Uh, our festival finished up at 8.30pm uh, on the 25th. So yeah, it's been two short days and uh, quite a few naps since it ended. Well deserved. Listen, talk us through, if you would, just the bare bones of, of Kurch as would have been. Then just what you had, the, what the digital version looked and felt like. So Quirch International Festival of Literature has been going for 35 years and it is a festival of between five and seven days uh, at the moment. It seems to vary year on year, uh, taking place in Galway in the west of Ireland every year. It has a real mix of stuff. Uh, I started in post as the director of the festival uh, at the end of last year and was working remotely on the programme, but I moved to Galway at the end of January this year. And this year's physical programme would have looked like uh, the 20th to the 25th of April, just the whole week of events across Galway, about, I think, 50 or so events between free and ticketed events. And that's what it was going to look like in person. We launched our programme on the 9th of March. So it had just been put into the world. Uh, And then three days later, on the 12th of March, the Irish government announced its uh, social distancing measures and its uh, shutdown. So not a lockdown at that point, but a shutdown. So instantly what we did is we had to prepare a number of scenarios to kind of think about what the festival could look like, what it would look like if it would go ahead in person, what it would look like if it had to go ahead in a different forum, you know, what would happen if we had to cancel. And what we ended up doing was a series of 11 events over three days, the 23rd to the 25th of April, uh, all online uh, in a variety of formats. So we had two podcasts, which was to to create some variety, but also to account for potentially poor connections. And then also uh, nine video events that were broadcast live on our YouTube channel. And so, yeah, that's what the digital festival looked like in, you know, kind of the mechanisms and the the framework of it. To take the festival program as was and turn it into this new we did give it this new shape. How did you go about deciding which bits of the program to refashion? I think for me, it was a it was a, a moment of sitting back with the program as we had put it together and thinking, you know, what what in this program really captures the spirit of Courch and what would translate well to an online event. Um, I think literature events in general are quite fortunate that if they wanted to try something a bit different, the production behind it is not huge. What you're trying to do is facilitate a good atmosphere for for a good conversation, and a conversation can happen on the internet. So, no, we we don't have big sets or sound design, lighting, that sort of thing. <laughs> so, so we're lucky in that regard. And I think just one of the the really strong threads of our program this year is that it's just been a bumper year for Irish writing. Emer McBride, Anne Enright, um, Sinead Gleeson, and then also some some really strong talent close to home. Alan McMonagall, Lisa McInerney. Mary Costello and Elaine Feeney are all Galway writers and Kevin Barry is only in Sligo. So really, you know, we, we were bringing the West of Ireland to the world, which to me seemed like a strong offering to potentially bring online. You know, we, we do have a bit of a USP there. I mean, I think it's fair to say it felt, you know, I, I tuned in for various of the events I was involved chatting to, to Kevin Barry and Jan Carson. It, and from afar, from online, you know, it felt like a, like a terrific buzz. I wonder though, before being out the other side, like what did you think might happen? What did you expect? of because you know it's it's an experiment isn't it you know it's a kind of a leap a leap of faith really it, it definitely was a leap especially because Quartz has not had a huge digital footprint in the past 
So I knew that we need to do it right. So that's why why we only did 11, for example, because I felt that we could probably do 11 right, but any more than that, and we would maybe struggle. I think you're right. The buzz was something that we, we really loved about the three days. We didn't know if we would be able to recreate that kind of festival community online, but I had a feeling, you know, that literary Twitter and Irish literary Twitter uh, loves the chat and that people were a bit starved for, you know, social contact by that point. And so to have something... Um, there's this lovely piece I can't remember the name of the person who wrote it but it's a poet in the UK and his wife died and he talks about their relationship and about how their relationship hangs upon a third thing Um, and there's always a third thing and it seems like for us for those three days we were very fortunate that for many people's conversations we were that third thing there were the the people coming to the conversation and then they were able to use course as as a thing to kind of come together the nicest feedback that we received really was people saying how close it felt to that post-festival buzz, you know, like the equivalent to having pints down in the pub and how less isolated it made them feel. That was lovely to read. What do you think like allowed for that to happen? Do you think there was something around it being broad? Like, was that kind of event event that stuff was timed and people gathered around it, even though they could catch up again? Yeah, I think it's a combination of a couple of things. Uh, there has been a lot of content, you know, people really, there, there was a rush to put things online as quickly as possible once all of the sort of restrictions across the globe were announced. And uh, I think we were lucky that we had a little bit of time before our festival was due to take place. So we could take some time to reflect and go, okay, well, what what could work in this context? Uh, So what we did is decide to set them up as much as possible, like a real festival. So if people wanted to come, they would browse the program. They were encouraged to book a ticket. Uh, There was a time and a date for every broadcast. And then, yeah, all events were broadcasted live. And I think that gave a sense of it. You know, we we encouraged people to sit down and, and make a cup of tea and settle in for the event. I think it really worked. I so enjoyed your conversation with Sinead Gleeson and Sarah Baum. You were chatting about birds and so on, of course, and that we you could hear chaffinches from mm-hmm. Sarah's garden. I just wondered what, what were your own personal festival highlights? There were a lot. It was wonderful. I did really love the conversation with Sarah and Sinead, though. Uh, those are oh, two books yeah. that I've read in the past few weeks. They just have been the, you know, the few books that I've actually been able to concentrate on during this time. I think, you know, all of our minds are quite scattered right now trying to figure out what to focus on and uh, me in particular with this mad idea <laughs> that mm-hmm. I had I just I haven't really been able to settle uh, but both of those books provided uh, a real sort of tonic to the times that we've right. been facing. Yeah, I did want to ask you about your lockdown reading. I think that there's um there's a there's a couple of different modes going on. You know, some people are are kind of really you know, reading stuff that will challenge and make them think about where, where we are. Um, I, I, yeah, I just would love to know a little bit more about how you're choosing. Obviously, you, ha- you read those for work. You had to read them. But how are you choosing what to read or even more so what not to read? I have been using the uh, approach of just reading whatever I think will make me feel good. Uh, I think it can be really, really tough. And I, I do often put a lot of pressure on myself to, to read things that I feel are are worthy or that would keep me kind of up to date and sometimes that that can take me away from things that that would bring me pleasure so I, I gave myself license to do some shopping I have Maggie O'Farrell's new book I have Carmen Maria Mercado's memoir in the dream house which I'm really looking forward to and I've just started Weather by Jenny Offal which is incredible oh, yes it couldn't have been more um timely I know we keep using this word timely and it came up a lot in your conversation with Sinead and Sarah just like to to write a book and then and then to have that book find it itself mm-hmm. in its perfect moment must be a really really weird feeling for a writer to you know experience Sasha we're nearly at the end here I just wanted to ask and I'm sure and I know that I've been recommending uh, the events that I enjoyed during Kurt but where 
can people find the festival, follow it, you know, websites, social media? So if people would like to learn a bit more about Cuir and the festival that just took place, they can go to our website, which is uh, C-U-I-R-T.ie for anyone who uh, isn't uh, familiar with Hiberno English. Uh, all of our events are archived up there, but also on our YouTube and SoundCloud channels. So if you just go to youtube.com forward slash Cuir Festival or soundcloud.com forward slash Cuir Festival. Check out those links from Sasha. I personally especially enjoyed events with Kai Miller and with Anne Enright. Absolutely stellar stuff. Thank you, Sasha. Thank you, Adrian Turpin. Thank you, Lee Randall. And thank you, you, for listening in. We'll be back soon. But in the meanwhile, don't forget, Wigtown's bustling with activity, even in lockdown. There's Wigtown Wednesdays, there's Bookshop Band on Fridays, and plenty else on the website in between. Take care of yourselves for now. Stay safe, and we'll be back soon. Bye-bye.